Book Three, Chapter Three of The Crossing by Winston Churchill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three Louisville Celebrates. They have grand time in Louisville tonight, Davy, said Jake Landress as he paddled me towards the Kentucky shore. You hear? I should be stone deaf if I didn't, I answered, for the shouting which came from the town filled me with forebodings. They come back from the barbecue full of whiskey, said Jake, and a young man at the tavern come out on the porch, and he say, Get ready, you all, to go to Louisiana. You been holed up back long enough by tyranny. Sam Baker come along, and he say he a Federalist. He done from a grand fight, he and the young fellow, and Sam got licked. He went at Sam like a hurricane. And then, I demanded, them four wanted to leave taking no trouble to disguise his disgust and i had to fetch em over i've got to go back and wait for em now and he swore with sincere disappointment i reckon there ain't been such a jamboree in town for years jake had not exaggerated gentlemen from moore's settlement from sullivan's station on the bare grass to be brief the entire male population of the county seemed to have moved upon louisville after the barbecue and I paused involuntarily at the sight which met my eyes as I came into the street. A score of sputtering, smoking pine knots threw a lurid light on as many hilarious groups and revealed, fantastically enough, the boles and lower branches of the big shade trees above them. Navigation for the individual, difficult enough lower down, in front of the tavern became positively dangerous. There was a human eddy, nay, a maelstrom would better describe it. Fights began, but ended abortively by reason of the inability of the combatants to keep their feet. One man, whose face I knew, passed me with his hat afire, followed by several companions in gusts of laughter, for the torch-bearers were careless and burned the ears of their friends in their enthusiasm. Another person whom I recognized lacked a large portion of the front of his attire, and seemed sublimely unconscious of the fact his face was badly scratched several other friends of mine were indulging in brief intervals of rest on the ground and i barely avoided stepping on them still other gentlemen were delivering themselves of the first impressive periods of orations only to be drowned by the cheers of their auditors these were the snatches which i heard as i picked my way onward with exaggerated fear gentlemen the mississippi is ours let the tyrants who forbid its use beware to hell with the federal government i tell you sirs this land is ours we've conquered it with our blood and i reckon no spaniard's going to stop us we ain't come this far to stand still we settle kentuck fit off the redskins and we'll march across the mississippi and on and on to louisiana they shouted and the whole crowd would take it up. To Louisiana! Open the river! So absorbed was I in my own safety and progress that I did not pause to think, as I have often thought since, of the full meaning of this, though I had marked it for many years. The support given to Wilkinson's plots, to Clark's expedition, were merely the outward and visible sign of the onward sweep of a restless race. In spite of untold privations and hardships, of cruel warfare and massacre, these people had toiled over the mountains into this land, and, impatient of cheek or hindrance, would, even as Clark had predicted, 
when their numbers were sufficient, leaped the Mississippi. Night or day, drunk or sober, they spoke of this thing with an ever-increasing vehemence, and no man of reflection who had read their history could say that they would be thwarted. One day Louisiana would be theirs, and their children's, for the generations to come. One day Louisiana would be American. That I was alive and unscathed when I got as far as the tavern is a marvel. Amongst all the passion-lit faces which surrounded me, I could get no sight of Nick's, and I managed to make my way to a momentary quiet corner of the porch. As I leaned against the wall there, trying to think what I should do, there came a great cheering from a little way up the street, and then I straightened in astonishment. Above the cheering came the sound of a drum beaten in marching time, and above that there burst upon the night what purported to be the Marseillaise, taken up and brawled by a hundred drunken throats and without words. Those around me who were sufficiently nimble began to run towards the noise, and I ran after them, and there, marching down the middle of the street at the head of a ragged and most indecorous column of twos, in the centre of a circle of light cast by a pine-knot which Joe Handy held, was Mr. Nicholas Temple. His bearing, if a trifle unsteady, was proud, and, if I could believe my eyes, around his neck was slung the thing which I prized above all my possessions, the drum which I had carried to Kaskaskia and Vincennes. He had taken it from the peg in my room. I shrink from putting on paper the sentimental side of my nature, and, indeed, I could give no adequate idea of my affection for that drum. And then there was Nick who had been lost to me for five years. My impulse was to charge the possession, seize Nick and the drum together, and drag them back to my room. But the futility and danger of such a course was apparent, and the caution for which I am noted prevented my undertaking it. The possession, augmented by all those to whom sufficient power of motion remained, cheered by the helpless but willing ones on the ground, swept on down the street and through the town. Even at this late day I shame to write it. Behold me, David Ritchie, Federalist, execrably sober, at the head of the column behind the leader. Was it twenty minutes or an hour that we paraded? This I know, that we sighted no street in the little town of Louisville. What was my bearing, whether proud or angry or carelessly indifferent? I know not. The glare of Joe Hardy's torch fell on my face. Joe Hardy's arm and that of another gentleman, the worst for liquor, were linked in mine, and they saw fit to applaud at every step my conversion to the cause of liberty. We passed, time and time again, the respectable dooryards of my Federalist friends, and I felt their eyes upon me with that look which the angels have for the fallen. Once, in front of Mr. Wharton's house, Mr. Handy burned my hair, apologized, staggered, and I took the torch. And I used it to good advantage in saving the drum from capture, for Mr. Temple, with all the will in the world, had begun to stagger. At length, after marching seemingly half the night, they halted by common consent before the house of a prominent Democrat, who shall be nameless and after some minutes of vain importuning, Nick, with a tattoo of the drum, 
marched boldly up to the gate and into the yard a desperate cunning came to my aid i flung away the torch leaving the head of the column in darkness broke from mr handy's embrace and seizing nick by the arm led him onward through the premises he drumming with great docility followed by a few stragglers only some of whom went down in contact with the trees of the orchard we came to a gate at the back which i knew well which led directly into the little yard that fronted my own rooms behind mr creede's store pulling nick through the gate i slammed it and he was only beginning to protest when i had him safe within my door and the bolt slipped behind him as i struck a light something fell to the floor with a crash an odor of alcohol filled the air and as the candle caught the flame i saw a shattered whiskey bottle at my feet and a room which had been given over to carousing in spite of my feelings i could not but laugh at the perfectly irresistible figure my cousin made as he stood before me with the drum slung in front of him his hat was gone his dust-covered clothes awry but he smiled at me benignly and without a trace of surprise so you've come back last davy he said you're you're very irregular you lose lobbishness you're worse than andy jackson he's always fightin i relieved him unprotesting of the drum thanking my stars there was so much as a stick left of it he watched me with a silent and exaggerated interest as i laid it on the table from a distance without came the shouts of the survivors making for the tavern fortunate you had the drum davy he said gravely will it have no possession it's fortunate i have it now i answered looking ruefully at the battered rim where nick had missed the skin in his ardor davy said he funny thing i didn't know you was a jacobite you hear he added relevantly that Landy jackson was married no i answered having no great interest in mr jackson where have you been seeing him again nashville on cumberland saxon county solicitor devil of a man i tell you davy he continued laying his uncertain hand on my shoulder and speaking with great earnestness i had chickenstall horse jackson virginia thoroughbred had a race and jackson wanted to shoot me and i wanted to shoot jackson and then we all went to the red heifer what the deuce is the red heifer i asked distillery over the spring then they blow a horn when the liquors runch then we had supper in major lewis's tavern major lewis came in with roast pig on platter you know roast pig davy jackson pulls out a hunting knife in ways you very majestic you know how majestic jackson is when he wants to be he let go my shoulder brushed back his hair in a fiery manner and seizing a knife which unhappily lay on the table gave me a graphic illustration of mr jackson about to carve the pig i retreating and he coming on when he stuck the pig davy he poised the knife for an instant in the air and then before i could interpose he brought it down deftly through the head of my precious drum and such a frightful agonized squeal filled the room that even i shivered involuntarily 
and for an instant I had the vivid vision of a pig struggling in the hands of a butcher. I laughed in spite of myself, but Nick regarded me soberly. "'Funny thing, David,' he said. "'They all left the room.' For a moment he appeared to be ruminating on this singular phenomenon. Then he continued, "'And Jackson was back first, and he was damned impolite, and he shook his fish in my face.' Here Nick illustrated Mr. Jackson's gesture, and he said, "'Great God, sir, you have a fine talent, but if you ever do that again, I'll, I'll kill you.' That's what he said, Davy. "'How long have you been in Nashville, Nick?' I asked. "'A year,' he said. "'Looking after property, I won rattle and snap, you remember.' "'And why didn't you let me know you were in Nashville?' I asked, though I realized the futility of the question. "'Thought you was mad at me,' he answered. "'But you ain't, Davy. You've been very good-natured and let me have your drum,' he straightened. "'I'm very much obliged.' "'And where were you before you went to Nashville?' I said. "'Charleston, Naples, Philadelphia, everywhere,' he answered. "'Now,' said he, "'I'm going to bed.' I applauded this determination, but doubted whether he meant to carry it out. However, I conducted him to the back room, where he set himself down on the edge of my four-poster, and, after conversing a little longer on the subject of Mr. Jackson, who seemed to have gotten upon his brain, he toppled over and instantly fell asleep with his clothes on. For a while I stood over him, the old affection welling up so strongly within me that my eyes were dimmed as I looked upon his face. Spare and handsome it was, and boyish still, the weaker lines emphasized in its relaxation. Would that relentless spirit with which he had been born make him, too, a wanderer forever? And was it not the strangest of fates which had impelled him to join this madcap expedition of this other man I loved, George Rogers Clark? I went out, closed the door, and lighting another candle, took from my portfolio a packet of letters. Two of them I had not read, having found them only on my return from Philadelphia that morning. They were all signed simply Sarah Temple. They were dated at a certain number in the Rue Bourbon, New Orleans, and each was a tragedy that which it had left unsaid. There was no suspicion of heroics, there was no railing of fate. The letters breathed but the one hope, that her son might come again to that happiness of which she had robbed him. There were in all but twelve, and they were brief for some affliction had nearly deprived the lady of the use of her right hand. I read them twice over, and then, despite the lateness of the hour, I sat staring at the candles, reflecting upon my own helplessness. I was startled from this reverie by a knock. Rising hastily, I closed the door of my bedroom, thinking I had to do with some drunken reveller who might be nosy. The knock was repeated. I slipped back the bolt and peered out into the night. "'I saw that light,' said a voice which I recognized. "'I think I come in to say good night.' I opened the door, and he walked in. "'You are one night owl, Monsieur Richie,' he said. "'And you seem to prefer the small hours for your visits, Monsieur de St. Gris,' I could not refrain from replying. 
He swept the room with a glance, and I thought a shade of disappointment passed over his face. I wondered whether he was looking for Nick. He set himself down in my chair, stretched out his legs, and regarded me with something less than his usual complacency. "'I have much like for you, Monsieur Richie,' he began, and waved aside my bow of acknowledgment. "'Before I go away from Louisville, I want to speak with you. This is a reason why I am here. You listen to what that Dupuis he say. That is not truth. My family knows you. I like to have you hear the truth.' He paused, and while I wondered what revelations he was about to make, I could not repress my impatience at the preamble. "'You're my friend. You have proved it,' he continued. "'You remember last time we meet?' I smiled involuntarily. "'You was in bed, but you not need be ashamed for me. Two days after I went to France, I am not in New Orleans since.' Two days after you saw me,' I repeated. "'Yes, I run away.' That was the month of August, 1789, and we have not then heard in New Orleans that the Bastille is attacked. I land at Le Havre. It is the end of September. We go to the Chateau de Saint-Gris, great iron gates, long avenue of poplar, big house all round the court, and Monsieur le Marquis is at Versailles. I borrow three louis from the concierge, and I go to Versailles, to the hotel, of Monsieur le Marquis. There's all that trouble what you read about going on, and Monsieur le Marquis, he is not so glad to see me for that reason. Monsieur Auguste, he cried, you want to be officer in Gardes de Corse? You are not afraid? Auguste stiffened. I am a sangree, Monsieur le Marquis. I am afraid of nothings, I answered. He take me to the king. I am made lieutenant. The mob come, and the king and queen are carried off to Paris. The king is prisoner. Monsieur le Marquis goes back to the Chateau de Saint-Gris. France is a republic. Monsieur, que voulez-vous? The sieur de Saint-Gris shrugged his shoulders. I, too, become republican. I become officer in the National Guard. One must move with the time. Is it not so, monsieur? I demand of you if you ever expect to see a sangri a republican. I expressed my astonishment. I give up my right, my principle, my family. I come to America. I go to New Orleans, where I have influence, and I stir up revolution for France, for liberty. Is it not noble cause? I had it on the tip of my tongue to ask Monsieur Auguste why he left France, but the uselessness of it was apparent. You see, monsieur, I am justified before you, before my friends. That is all I care. And he gave another shrug in defiance of the world at large. What I have done, I have done for principle. If I remain royalist, I might have married my cousin, Mademoiselle de Saint-Gris. Ha, monsieur, you remember. The miniature, you were so kind as to borrow me four hundred liveries. I remember, I said. It is because I have much confidence in you, monsieur, he said. It is because I go pate, to danger, to death, that I come here and ask you to do me a favor. You honor me too much, monsieur, I answered, though I could scarce refrain from smiling. It is because of your character, monsieur Auguste was good enough to say. You are to be reposing. You are to be rely on. 
Sometime I think you very old man, and this is why, and since you like objects of art, that I bring this and ask you to keep it while I am in danger. I was mystified. He thrust his hand into his coat and drew forth an oval object wrapped in dirty paper, and then disclosed to my astonished eyes the miniature of Mademoiselle de St. Gré. The miniature, I say, for the gold back and setting were lacking. Auguste had retained only the ivory, whether from sentiment or necessity, I will not venture. The sight of it gave me a strange sensation and I can scarcely write of the anger and disgust which surged over me, of the longing to snatch it from his trembling fingers. Suddenly I forgot Auguste and the lady herself. There was something emblematical in the misfortune which had bereft the picture on its setting. Even so, the revolution had taken from her a brilliant life, a king and queen, home and friends. Yet the spirit remained unquenchable set above its mean surroundings, ay, and untouched by them. I was filled with a painful curiosity to know what had become of her which I repressed. Auguste's voice aroused me. Ah, oh, monsieur, is it not a face to love, to adore? It is a face to obey, I answered with some heat, and with more truth than I knew. Mon Dieu, monsieur, it is so. It is that make me love you know not how you know not what love is monsieur richie you never love like me you have not some reason monsieur he continued leaning forward and putting his hand on my knee i think she love me i'm not sure i should not be surprised but monsieur le marquis her father he treat me very bad monsieur le marquis is guillotine now i must not speak evil of him but he marry her to one old garçon, le vicomte d'Ivry-le-Tour. So mademoiselle is married, I said after a pause. Oui, she is madame la vicomtesse now. I fall at her feet just the same. I hear her once at Belle-Ole, the chateau of Monsieur le Prince de Ligny in Flanders. After that they go I know not where. They are exiled, lost to me. He sighed and held out the miniature to me. Monsieur, I ask you favor. Will you be as kind and keep it for me again? I have wondered many times since why I did not refuse. Suffice it to say that I took it, and Auguste's face lighted up. I am a thousand times grateful, he cried, and added, as though with an afterthought, Monsieur, would you be so kind as to borrow me five dollars? End of chapter three.